Uh, okay, thanks to everyone for coming on, especially on what is a unusually noteworthy day for Trinity. Um, we'll be all closing up at six. I'm trying to keep on as normal whatever we can in the next couple of weeks. Um, we are also, just to let you know, this is being recorded. We're trying out, obviously, systems that will allow people to um, to, to join remotely. So people, some people are dialing in remotely, but almost certainly on mute. Um, they don't get pizza, obviously. Uh, and then we're recording it and making it available for people who couldn't join. Um, uh, we will have a link available for people who want to watch back. Um, so just to let you to know, to know that. Um, as is customary for our March bite size, um, we're celebrating International Women's Day. Um, so, so I kind of, uh, uh, it can be loosely defined, but we're reasonably tightly defined, I think, um, uh, on the theme this year. And um, so we have three presentations. We've uh, Nina, sorry, Nandini Gupta and Kiro Khan on the So what we'll do is we'll ask Evan to present for 10 minutes and then have um, five minutes between the presentations um, uh, for, uh, for discussion and questions. If you want to take less time and have more time for Q&A, um, that's fine too. And we'll do it in the order that I suggested. And um, Nandini first, then Kiro and Bob. So Nandini is up first, she's a PhD student in International Peace Studies and the, her title of her PhD project is The Wandering Minstrels of Hope, Tracing the Role of Women's Grassroots Peace Building in Kashmir and Northern Ireland. Hi, so thank you for the introduction. And my research is basically, basically focusing on the peace building strategies of Northern Ireland and Kashmir. But for this presentation, I thought that I'll uh, focus only on Kashmir issue because it's in the news and I actually want to bring it to the international uh, platform. So um, uh, the title of my research and also for this presentation is The Wandering Mysteries of Hope. And as I go along, maybe I, I will be understand, um, I'll be able to build on this title and how women, especially at the grassroots level, have actually been the wandering mysteries of hope amongst the environment of bombs, bullets, and uh, the policies of terrorism and violence. So um, since uh, this, uh, the theme of this uh, research session was on, was on International Women's Day, and um, with International Women's Day, there came um, the lot of applause for feminist movements all around the globe, and uh, the privilege that we hold as emancipated and free women but I would like to start my presentation with a very famous uh, international poet and activist, Audre Lorde, and her quote, which is a constant inspiration for me uh, as, as a feminist uh, activist and also as a researcher, where she says that I'm not free while any woman is unfree, even when her shackles are very different from my own. And with this, um, I would like to start my presentation and also discuss the shackles of various women who are still struggling to be heard and seen all around the globe. And till that time when they themselves can declare themselves free, can we um, here talking in academia as, as an emancipated woman call us as free? So uh, on that note, I would like to discuss. And I thought that since Kashmir is not a very um, known topic around the globe, I would like to start with a little bit geography and history of Kashmir so that I can uh, later on, so that it's easier for, for all of us to understand what's going on and what's the major topics for which women are resisting there. So uh, this is a, a map that I have put there. 
And my research is basically focused on the occupied uh, area of Kashmir, which is occupied by India. And the, the uh, Kashmir is basically right now divided between India and Pakistan. So one is occupied by India, and there is the other one administered by um, Pakistan. So, um, so Kashmir has always been a very disputed area because during the time of uh, partition between India and Pakistan, because the population in Kashmir was predominantly Muslim, Pakistan wanted Kashmir to be its part, whereas um, the, the Maharaja, the king of Kashmir, annexed to be with India. So there has always been um, a lot of controversy because of nationalism that is around there in India and Pakistan. And there has been no formal solution that has been put forward by both the government and there's a lot of terrorism activities and a um, major military lockdown in Kashmir right now. So the historical background, like I already stated, there was a partition between India and Pakistan in 1947 uh, on the basis of religion. Uh, Pakistan is predominantly Muslim where uh, Hindus were asked to come to India. Um, at that time, Kashmir um, was a very controversial issue because the king there um, annexed or wanted to be part of India. Uh, but on the return of that, India gave Kashmir a very, very special status, Article 370, uh, which right now with the coming of Hindu fundamentalist party in power, they have taken away. But that's, of course, a later, later, later development. But at that time, they gave Kashmir the Article 370. And 370 gave Kashmir a very autonomous identity. And India was only allowed to interfere in three, three domains, communication, for, uh, foreign policy, and foreign, foreign trade. Uh, but in 1957, India declared Kashmir as a state of Indian Union. And because of which, there was a lot of revolt happened. And Pakistan also started the, um, the sending terrorists in because they wanted to rescue their Muslim brothers from the, from the power and state of India. So UN at that time intervened into the situation and uh, UN suggested that there should be a ceasefire, a line of control between India and Pakistan. There should be uh, no uh, use of military violence. So there should be a ceasefire completely and there should be a plebiscite. So the people of Kashmir can then still decide whether they want to be with India or they want to be Pakistan or they want Kashmir to be an independent country themselves. So, uh, but that time, uh, India didn't let that happen, neither did Pakistan. And in 1989, the militancy in region grew enormously. And there was the first bomb blast that happened. So the situation got really tense in um, late 80s and 90s. And from there on, you actually see it becoming a hub of terrorist, um, no, no, the terrorist, uh, the, the activities conducted by terrorists and the army also came from India and there was a counter insurgency movement by India where India put Kashmir uh, as, as Armed Special Forces Act in 1990 and that act came as a big blow for the people of Kashmir because arrest could happen without any warrants, they could be shoot at any site. Um, uh, the, the army men could uh, infiltrate any home and can search anybody, rape women, and there can be no accountability because India dis decided to declare Kashmir as a disturbed place. Uh, 43,000 people have been killed since, this, since that time and 8 to 10,000 people have been disappeared. And my research is specifically focusing on the enforced disappearances in the Valley of Kashmir and what women have potentially been doing to resist that. And grassroots women, 
And um, as you see, they are labeled sometimes as half widows or half mothers because they don't know whether their husbands are alive, are they disappeared, will they come back? Um, you know, they are married, not married. Um, so for that, uh, I'm specifically talking on uh, Parveena Ahangar, uh, who is also known as the Iron Lady of Kashmir. And she is also uh, the chairman. She has now founded her own organization called uh, Association of Parents of Disappeared People. So a uh, little bit background for Praveena. She, her only son got disappeared by the security guard in Srinagar uh, in 1990. And from that time, she started to form this organization where she went door to door to find contact with other people whose sons and daughters have been enforced, uh, uh, have been disappeared by the military. Um, and for that, she has even started hosting a monthly protest as, uh, at the Pratap Park. There's a place there. And um, in her background, she, like I said, that she's a completely illiterate woman. And it's been 30 years that her struggle has been continued uh, in a place where literacy rate is less than 35%. Uh, this organization, APDP, consists of 60% of women. So it, it's, a, it's a big uh, achievement that they have made. Uh, regarding her protests, um, like when I was there in Kashmir myself, a few years back, uh, and I was also a part of their protests, uh, the protests, I, I saw them, I saw that protest as a kind of mourning that they're doing every month to kind of remember the beloved sons and husbands that, they have, that have been lost. And the very striking feature that came out of the protest for me was that how in, this, in that protest their life in itself became a kind of a resistance. So it's not an isolated part of a resistance that people come out and chant logos and maybe come back come back peacefully at their house and go back again. So that, that's not an isolated event, but her life in itself has become a resistance. And that I could relate to because when I was there, we also went to a marriage function. Um, and while we were sitting in Pratapa doing protests, I saw her singing wedding songs. Generally, uh, see, they started, all of the women started wedding songs. And I was kind of baffled as well that, you know, we are here doing something very political. And why are they started singing wedding songs? And later, later on, when I went to a wedding with her, uh, after five days, I was there for 15 days, um, there, was a, there was a wedding that we attended. And in the wedding, uh, they all started mourning. And I was again, I said, what's wrong with these women? Like, you know, they're maybe, you know, mixed mix, mix matching things. And as I lived long with them, I saw that everything in their life, whether it's marriage, whether it's protest, whether it's living, has been tied down to that protest that they are raging against the government, against the international regime, which has not given them enough platform to come out to, you know, propagate what's happening in Kashmir, because, you know, we are very well aware of, uh, of places like Palestine. But when I come and talk to, to people about Kashmir, they just know, oh, yeah, it's a very disputed area between India and Pakistan, that's it. So the international awareness as well, the question is about that. Um, we can speak, but can you all, all hear us? Because according to her, they, we can't. And, uh, and then again, uh, there was another lady I met there whose name was Husna. And that was again a very, very, and in fact, this metaphor remains quite 
constant in my field of research as well, um, Husna's door, that she herself lost her son in 1989, and she recently died in 2013, and she has still not got to find her son. Um, and when I went to see her and talked to her regarding my research, because my infant dissertation was also on them, and I, I was talking to uh, to her, and I saw, and when I came in, she constantly said, and it was really, really cold there, really cold, like really minus eight, and she asked me, and there's no like uh, isolated heaters and everything. And she asked me, can you please leave the door open? And uh, I said, okay. I, I thought again at that time, I said, that it's so cold. But I later on came to know that all the time she keeps her door open. She doesn't close that door in the hope that her son is going to come back. By talking to her, she said that I have tried everywhere. I go to the policeman, I go to the police office, but nobody's there to file an FIR. FIR is the first information report that you file against somebody who has been disappeared or murdered. But if nobody, they're not, the policemen are not cooperating. They said, I don't know, maybe your son went and married a woman. And maybe he went to the Pakistan to become a terrorist. So we can't file a report. And she said that I, I don't know what to do. I'm going every day. She has all those files, everything. And she, she started showing me, but she was constantly focusing on her door and her door to be open. And in that sense, I could somehow relate it to um, a Kafka story before the law. If anyone, if anyone you are, is aware of that, so in that story, there's a there's a man who uh, who keeps uh, he go who goes to the who goes in front of the door of law and he wants to go inside, but there is a guard there who doesn't let him go inside. And he waits all his life. He tries to bribe him. He tries to go inside him. But he completely says, you can't go. And he keeps sitting there. And towards the end of his life, when he's going to die, he says, that why, why nobody else ever came in front of this door? And the guard says, because this door was only meant for you. Since you didn't go inside, nobody else will go. So that's just a small synopsis I'm saying. But you know, strikingly, in, in Husna's uh, resistance, uh, I didn't see her as a victim who is going before every, every door of law and she's not able to open, but she, she also has agency. She has her own door open as well. You see, and that's the, the power of their resistance. Even though she, they don't know theories like us discussing Derrida or Foucault and doing academic stuff, but uh, they're not on the tables making policies. But that, that, that small fire of hope that none of us, no government, um, no law, nothing is able to extinguish is the essence of their resistance. It, is that what keeps them going? It has always amongst rape, amongst disappearances, amongst killing, everything. So uh, to me, she's the gate gatekeeper of hope and struggle, which no state can actually squash down. And they keep that specter of their loved, loved ones always alive to that door. So that in itself became a quite powerful um, metaphor for me. And then yeah, sorry. Uh, and then there was a small video I wanted to play, but um, that's Praveen she got a prize on international um, on the international front, and she has given the message for the international committee. But there's no time. Maybe later on, if you want, we can play that. And uh, then there's a small poem. Maybe I can read that's written by a um, by a by a Kashmiri poet on how memory has become a resistance, has become a potent form of their resistance. And she says, memory resides in the emptiness of a stoic stare, in the gaze of their bloodshot eyes, in the restraint of her legs, in weight of their sovereign tosses, in the prayer of her lips, in the stench of their breaths, in the restlessness of her feet, in the sound of their boots and barrels, in our screams piercing the heavens, in the stink of blood and pain, in our torn hands and calves, 
in the creases of the uniform shiny insignia, certifying carte blanche. Memory is an autumn of massacres and resilience, a winter of torture, rape, disappearances and resilience, a spring of siege by 6,000 outlanders and resilience, a summer of trampling jackboots and resilience. Memory is the unsettling dust of our beings. Memory is opposite of time. An antonym of their preamble, memory is a synonym of our history. That's what I have, and I'm trying to re trying to relate it to what's ha what happened in Northern Ireland um, and how women there existed as well. Um, so that's it. Thank you. We have a couple minutes there for questions. Yeah. So when you were speaking about the resistance that they're doing there, I automatically thought about the ones that disappeared in Argentina. Yes. And I wondered if there is any kind of cross-national understanding movement that they're part of, like this larger movement that's been going on, or if that they see it quite prevalent. Yes. Uh, so the the video that I wanted to play, Pravina herself acknowledges that that there's enforced disappearances in Argentina. Uh, there has also been cases of, uh, doing my research, I came across uh, in Fort in Northern Ireland as well. Uh, not too much, but there were cases. And she th she brings it to that, that uh, it's not only a solitary movement, it's transnational. And it, it's a movement all across the globe that has happened. And we would like to raise it as an international movement. But the thing is that that's what she, that she's tr struggling to bring it to the international forum and link it with the, with the other forms. What do you think the struggle would cause? It's, it's because it's media actually, India media, you know, in media in, for example, like I gave you the example of Israel and Palestine, they're very active there, like, you know, even uh, the indigenous forms of me, you can see in social media as well, there's so much graffiti coming up from Palestine and you can actually see the issues of settlers colonization there and everything. But in Kashmir, that's the problem. There is severe breakdown of communication. There is like right now, like I mentioned about 370, the Indian government has scrapped down that, um, that, that special autonomous uh, feature that they had and now for nearly four months there was no forms of communication at all no internet no telephone so people who lived in kashmir kashmir is my friends who are here they couldn't contact back home so it's like a living hell like i could relate it now because of coronavirus there's a lockdown even here and we are so much panicking everywhere i'm actually seeing everybody getting panicked oh my god I'm, let's stop stock up toilet paper let's talk up this let's talk up that but imagine about them, they're living in lockdowns for nearly 47 years, nearly 30, 40 years, and that's their life. And, you know, like the, the least that I as a, as a researcher could do is to like uh, spread it across everybody to create an awareness to help them. That's, that, that's what I do. And so that's what, that's what her motive is to bring, to make it transnational, place it on a transnational uh, axis. I mean, what they can do is actually to um, to follow the 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 measure that UN has actually given. I think that's the best thing that they could do in all the reports that have come out to bring out peace there or the peace organizations have worked there. The, the, the first thing is to actually stop uh, to take out the military. 
so at, at, at present kashmir is the most militarized uh, place in the world it's the most militarized world in think the densely militarized the most militarized place the first thing that according to me and not to me, to me uh, the the measure that have been stated is to take away military from there to make it a normal place to let people breathe to let people think so that's i think the thing that indian government could do and if you also raised the question of pakistani government so according to me pakistani government can can stop encouraging people to take up arms on the basis of religion and because there are a lot of terroristic activity that is happening in kashmir and very near to pakistan as well and therefore their political ventures are encouraging young boys they are brainwashing them so i am and my research is not unilaterally blaming indian government it's both the government it's the political power that is feeding upon people's life women's life young people young children everybody is under lockdown under arrest so like i mentioned like 10000 people have been disappeared it's a big number the population around there um, could be around 3 lakh 3 to 4 lakhs so um, 3 to 4 lakh people is the is the occupation there in indian in, in indian administration i am not aware of the pakistani indian administration around 3 to 4 lakh people resident there out of there nearly 10 10000 people have been disappeared no problem thanks thanks very much thank okay. you so much thank, thank you, you very much. Next up, we have uh, Kira O'Connell, who's a research fellow at the School of Law. She'll be presenting on gender, women, and prisons, doing empirical research. Okay, just stand here. Okay. Hi, everyone. I'm Kira. I'm a research fellow with the Prilla Project, which is prisons, rule of law, accountability, and rights. So. I, last December, I went to Scotland to HSP Edinburgh and did some research with the women there, and I wanted to kind of maybe share with you some of the things that they had talked about, and talk to you also about doing research in women's prison and challenges that arise from that. So, before we go into it, let's talk about what it's like for women in prison globally. So, women are represent about five percent of the global prison population. In Ireland, that's about four percent. But in total, it's about 714,000 women and girls are in prison across the globe, which brings up about 7% across the globe. The number of women and girls has increased, though, by 50% since the year 2000. So we've seen a huge, huge jump. For men, it's about 20% of an increase. So what's happening with women doesn't really even fall in line with what's happening with normal population growth. There's something going on across the globe where women are being highly incarcerated. And you can see in other places like Africa that that the rate is much lower, three percent. So it's not consistent across the board. So in Ireland, I pulled the numbers from mid, around mid February, and that's many people were in custody in Ireland, four thousand one hundred and fifty, and one hundred and seventy six of them were women at the time. So just up the road from us, there's about one hundred and forty women in prison, and then over in Limerick, it's a male prison, and then it has a small wing for women, so it's thirty six women there. So it's about four percent of the population in Ireland, and that's held steady for the past few decades, as you can see right there, kind of from 2010. So the reason that women go to prison often differ from the reasons that men go to prison. So first off, women, getting a little theoretical, women who transgress gender norms are more society doesn't really know what to do with them. 
So these are your women who are sex workers or maybe back in the old days, they might have been like hysterical for some reason. They didn't know what to do, put you away, right? But the idea with this is that you're now you're doubly deviant. You're a criminal, but you're now a bad mom, a bad wife. So you have these all these extra labels on top of you. The crimes that women commit are just in general a lot less violent than the ones that men commit. And the crimes that women commit are often way less violent than crimes that have been committed against them. So we're looking at Scotland today and 70% of the women in prison in Scotland report being abused by their domestic partner or spouse. So the crimes that they're committing are most often like, I think it's like 35% of the crimes are shoplifting. So they're more low level things or for fines and things like that. This means that I, theoretically, or I guess that when they come to prison, because they're less violent, they're going to pose less risk to the institution of the prison, so that they shouldn't they don't need as much security, ideally. And then when they're in prison, women just have different needs: gynecological care, trauma support services, all these kinds of things. But because they represent such a small number of our prison services, where they're either just a wing of a prison or they're just four percent of the population. Those needs are often an afterthought. There's limited resources, and so really sometimes it's just like they say, well, women will give them a different kind of gendered activity. They can do knitting. Like they just that's kind of as far as it goes. So in December, I went to HP Edinburgh. The project that I work on with my colleagues right here is we try to see how oversight bodies impact on prisoners and staff and what prisoners and staff think about them. So I was there for that project, but I won't go into it too much today. But when I was, I was there for two weeks and it was my most challenging time, uh, project research trip. I had done research with them here in Ireland and then also in Norway and then in Scotland. It was so confined, so violent. A dude had his ear sliced off while I was there. It was just a very intense place to be. And the women, it's a, it's a male prison with 800 and something prisoners, but they didn't have enough spots for women a decade ago. So they made a temporary wing for the women, which now we know it's not that temporary. So there's a hundred women living in a men's prison. So they don't really have, the men get to, they, the city gave them a bus to turn into a recording studio for the community. But the women's two workshops are, or three, hairstyling, making wood plaques with their names on them for years and years. I don't know how many times, how many wood plaques you need and making cards for each other. And that's it. That's all they can do. But like, so they have, don't really have any way to like give back to the community or engage. Doing research in this kind of situation, you're only, I was only allowed two and a half hours a day to do research, but four hours of sitting around trying to get from A to B. This prison is very closed down, like a lot of Irish prisons. You stand in the middle, you can see everything around you. This is just halls, and you can't see where you're going to be, so you have to wait for someone to take you. But no, for some reason, no visitors are allowed to move while prisoners are on the move. So, and there's so many different populations in this prison. There's sex offenders, people on remand, women, and the women and sex offenders can never see each other. So it's the security nightmare. So when you're trying to do research, yeah, 50 calls are made to be like, can a woman move down the hall at this time? Then when you get to your room, they have to go get your prisoner who it turns out is terrified to leave herself, which I didn't think. As researchers, we automatically assume everyone will want to come out of their cell. It's a different thing to their routine. They're gonna, it's gonna be great. And even people who we have a protocol where you approach people and then give them 24 hours notice and then you come back so that they have time to think and they don't feel forced. Everybody said yes on the first day and then the second day, no way. And also the governor of the prison, he wanted me to work where the lawyers work. That's not where the women live. The women are super, super institutionalized and they don't like to leave where they live. So then I had to negotiate with the governor to get back over where they are. 
which took tons and tons of work. And because they only get two and a half hours a day, our interviews are sometimes an hour and a half long. So you would start an interview, have to go away for two hours for lunch, and then hope that they would come back to continue the interview with you. But I have so many interviews where they're like, oh, all I can think about is when am I going to get back to myself? So you know that they're really, really stressed the whole time. So, and also HMP Edinburgh has a significant population of trans women that live in the women's hall. So I thought that within my time today, I don't know how much time I have left, but I thought I'd let the women do the speaking. On my last day there, one of like the old timey, old school prisoners pulled out of her bra a big wad of paper. And she and some other prisoners had copied for me a survey that they had wanted to give to the, all the staff that work with them. The governor didn't let them give the survey, but she thought this is a good way for everyone to see what the issues are that they have and how they conceptualize them. So I just picked a few of them for you guys to see. So the first one's mental health, and you can see they try to like let the officer know that they get where they're coming from when they make decisions or what the issues that they're dealing with. So they'll say mental health is quite a big issue amongst the women in custody and is mainly officers on the halls who have to deal with problems that arise on a day-to-day -day basis. As an officer, do you get any training in mental health, i.e. how to spot someone in distress and things like that? So all the questions are kind of geared to, we kind of understand where you're coming from, but we can see what we want. Here, if you were approached by a prisoner having difficulties mentally, how would you manage the situation? And I think these are interesting because for us, like A, refer them to a listener, that's another prisoner who's been trained to listen. We might think that sounds really nice, but from interviewing them, they all hate the listeners because it's only 100 women and they all know each other's drama. They're not, they don't want to talk to each other. So being told that by the staff makes them mad. But we just thought we might be like, oh, that's nice. They listen to each other. Uh, offer them time out behind the door because they like to go back behind the door. They don't want to be out. Give them pens and pencils. Give her a mental health referral form. Set aside some time to sit down and chat to the prisoner. And ask the prisoner what they think would help them at the moment. So it's obviously the last one that they would like. The second theme that is quite a huge theme across, I think, all prisons is staff shortages. So what is the reason do you think why there are so many staff shortages recently? If they continue, prisoners are only allowed out of their cell at mealtimes, what do you think would help prisoners cope behind the door? And I'll tell you, HMP Edinburgh women are very, very into the idea of in-cell phones. And the governor has said he's into the idea of in-cell phones and all the staff. So that's why it's their number one thing. They're like, if we could just get in-cell phones. And it's because a woman in the young, in the juvenile institute, someone had uh, died by suicide and they put phones in their cells and the rate dropped. So now they're trying to spread that out. Then the third one is staff motivation, which I thought was really enlightening to see like, why the heck do you want to do this job? So they... So it pays the bills close to where I live. A family member recommended it. I've always wanted to work with Scottish Prison Service. I want to help people, and I feel like I can do that with this job. It's just a job until I find something else. I wanted a job with a uniform, a lifelong career, and I love this one. I, I love the power of the uniform and the keys give me. And then at the bottom, she said, do you think about trying to help change people's lives, or do you come to work, do your shift, and out the door, nothing more? So it's quite interesting, I think, how they conceptualize a bit. And then the buzzword we all know with prisons is like rehabilitation. What can we do with rehabilitating prisoners? And they said, as an experienced prison officer, do you think rehabilitation is provided to prisoners, whether they're doing short sentence or long term? In your opinion, what's offered? What things do you think could do you think could be done for prisoners to avoid reoffending? So those are like the things that are hot on their minds. There's some more too, but I just wanted to flag us some questions to think about based on these and also just from other ideas working with women in prison. But given this really small population that we have with women in prison and then the resulting challenges that that creates around resources, 
what can we expect of prisons, really, when it comes to equal treatment? Human rights bodies keep saying, treat women equally in prison. Like, how? How, how will that work? What will that look like? And the second, are prisons really the best place to rehabilitate women? And if no, what alternatives can we like push our brains to think of, like rather than just thinking no? And then third, is there a role for more prisoner participata participation in developing prison policy and human rights standards? If so, what could that look like? And I thought this survey was like a really cool, like they're not stupid people. Like they understand how things work. And if they had a seat at the table, you might get a lot more done. You might actually get more buy-in for everybody. So that's the end of it. Thank you very much. Again, we ran away. A few minutes for questions. I have, I have yeah. one. Um, I, I think my father right has eleven prisoners and ten officers. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the order was, but did you get that survey in time to ask any of those questions? Last day. Last day. Okay. Yeah, last day. Last last person, and I. She knew because we had gone to lunch, so we started the interview and then I came back for the second half. She had it for me. So yeah, I would have liked to, but I also didn't really want to let them know that I had it. Mm, yeah. Yeah, did, yeah. did any of the issues that you found out about on the last day through this, and they come up in your interviews with the officers? Well, they were all, all the office, those interviews were done during the same time period. But all those things that they talked about, the staff would say the same things. They are all worried about resources. They're worried about staff shortages. All of them. It's kind of there's only seven staff for those 100 people, and they work when I was there two at a time. So they're all kind of like behind the walls, kind of screwed. So they would probably agree with all of those. I was just I just thought it was interesting that the governor just shut it down. It might have been interesting to even hold a dialogue with those questions to see what would what would come up across because they have a lot in common with the issues. The safety the issues they face are all because of staffing. So those kinds of things. Yeah. Second one, Scotland is starting these efforts to, they're creating like tiny prisons for women because there's also so few women that they're usually really, really far from their families because they have to go to those few women's prisons. So the idea is, is to create, like for small, low level offenses, there should be community sanctions. They shouldn't be going to prison. And Scotland also started to do something with three month or lower sentences to make those be community served sentences. But the idea of like small prisons, 20 people, I think that's okay. I personally don't think that any women should be in any prison, <laughs> but like if institutionally, maybe that's something that we could start working towards. Scotland is building one right now. So we'll see by 2021 when it gets built, what happens. And for the project, the, the way to pick countries was, my whole project was only supposed to be one country, but then, cause we study, I study one, the European Committee for the Prevention of Torture. They give a list of every country they go to, and then I was picking through them what are countries that would kind of be good. We look at recommendations and things, and then I wanted to make sure that we included some women. So when I saw that they went and saw women, I was like, let's go there, because I had to kind of follow where they were. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just, uh, if 
it was a sort of a presentation you told that like when you were explaining about women and business, yeah. usually women who go to prison are deviant women. That proceeds, yeah. Proceeds yeah. deviant women. And then you also talked about that how women, like, you know, prison institutionalized people and like in relating to like, for example, I, I studied uh, like post-modern theory, you see that for example, the theorist called Foucault who has talked a lot about prison, he says this a lot, that mm -hmm. prison is, is the main gateway for the state to actually institutionalize people. Mm -hmm. So I, you interviewed so many women, did you feel that their deviancy was kind of controlled there? or That the world was controlled? Sorry. Their deviancy yeah. or, you know, for example, their transgressive nature or kind of, you felt that they, they were being teamed up, they, like they were being brought down or institutionalized? 100%. They recognize it in themselves. They say all the time, I can feel that I'm changing. I can yeah. feel that I see myself differently. Or And then sometimes they rebel back against it. I had some older women who'd been in prison a long time, and they're like, well, I'm a fighter. Like, I want to fight the institution, but I know I need to, like, to take a break every, time, every couple of months because it wears me down. But then you also have huge differences in the type of offender. So you have some girls who are just in there because they did some drugs. And they're up off their head running landings, but then you have really vulnerable people and they have a roof over their landing because they don't want them to mess with the other younger people up top. And that's where you will have trans people, women who killed their children, people who are like that are targeted by other prisons. So when I even when I interviewed women who are highly vulnerable like that, if they had to come up one floor, they would be shaking like a leaf because they're so so. Even amongst the population, there's like levels of deviance, and like if you come out of your box, they're gonna get you. Yeah, I never saw black eyes and stuff until I was in the prison. It was really obvious. Okay, thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you. Uh, and also, and Amal, you have a, a time concern as well. Uh, it's Paul Charan, who's the director of the Loyola Institute. The title of our talk is "Women and the Church." Thank you. No slides. I've no slides. Yeah, I just say that I'm going to have to leave at ten to collect to go through my Panopto course. So sorry about that. Um, so my title actually I thought it was leadership, women and leadership in the wow. church, 2020. But that's fine. So if you have the women and leadership in the church, um, you might think, well, it's going to be a very short presentation <laughs> because um, I'm a woman and a theologian in the Catholic tradition. And for those of you who are familiar with the Catholic Church, <clears throat> we have a pope in Rome, and he's a man. We have cardinals, we have bishops, we have parish priests. And decision-making lies with the priest, according to canon law, decision-making lies with the ordained. But we have to admit that in this, the Catholic Church is not too far out of line with society. The findings of the UN Development Forum Gender Index, published last Thursday, inform us that 90% of the population in 75 countries is biased against women. The World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report shows that the current rate of change, the global gender gap, will take 108 years to close. So the Church is actually not out of sync, it's sort of in the middle. It's not up to date with, we say, Norway, Sweden, Finland, but there's a lot of other countries that would have similar views to that. That's not to say that it's correct. But I've done a lot of work on women and women in leadership and women in ministry, and I think there is a lot to be said, especially if you understand leadership as influence. Women have been very influential in the church. In particular, I would say before the Reformation, which was in the 1500s, the first 1,500 years, and again, a little bit more recently. So I want to go back to two of the women who were named as doctors of the church in 1970 by one of the popes. That is Catherine of Siena and Teresa of Avila. Just a little word about both of them. Catherine of Siena was from Siena in Tuscany. She was born in 1347. She was the 23rd child of 24 children. 
She was born into a country which was plagued by war and disease. She was born into a time when the clergy was compromised by corruption, wealth and infidelity, and lots of people were leaving the church. To a Catholic, that sounds all too familiar. In a sense, history teaches us that where we are today is not unlike where we have been before. Catherine was very influenced by a group, um, a male congregation called the Dominicans, also known as the Order of Preachers. She herself decided to dedicate herself in a very radical way to her faith, to God. She spent a lot of time in prayer. But then she decided she needed to get involved in what was happening in the world of her time. So she got involved in preaching, which is not normally understood as a women's role, especially today. Back then, there were a number of women preaching, not well received, but they were preaching and teaching. She got involved in peacemaking and she got involved in politics. In the peacemaking, she tried to negotiate peace between the Pope and the Papal States, who were very uh, controlling and a lot of power, and Florence and the Florentine States in Italy. The most important thing she did, though, perhaps was in 1376, she went to Avignon, where the Pope had moved to, and she sought to convince Pope Gregory XI to come back to Rome. And she wrote to him very strongly. She said to him, she's a letter written to him after she visited, she said, for example, up father, put into effect the resolution you have made concerning your return in the crusade. You can see that the unbelievers are challenging you, challenging you to this by coming as close as they can to take what is yours. Up, to give your life to Christ. Isn't our body the only thing we have? Why not give your life a thousand times if necessary for God's honor and salvation of his creatures? This is what God did, and you, God's vicar, ought to be carrying on God's work. It is to be expected that as long as you are God's vicar, you will follow God's ways and examples. So come, come, delay no longer. And she continues like that. So that's quite remarkable in that era. The 1300s, a woman writing to the Pope and saying that. And the Cardinals didn't want him to go back. Other people didn't want him to go back, but he went back. Now, the history is longer than that, but he went back as a result of her intervention. So I think that's Catherine of Siena. Then we have Teresa of Avila, who was just an amazing woman. Teresa of Avila lived at the time of the Reformation, the 1500s, also the time of the Spanish Inquisition. So we've now moved from the world we call Italy today to the world we call Spain today. Teresa of Avila was someone that I read, first of all, um, when I started off doing theology, and I didn't like her. I didn't like her at all because she keeps apologizing for being, a, for being a woman, but we've come back to that. So Teresa was joined a congregation called the Carmelites, who were an enclosed order. But she didn't find their life all that interesting. It was fine. You brought your servants with you, you had your own room, you had a great life, you had visitors. It was a very, very nice middle-class life. But then at some stage, she had a, what we would call a radical conversion to God in her late 40s. And she decided she wanted to reform this group of Carmelites and go back to the ancient tradition of the Carmelites. So she did this and refounded the congregation against the greater will of many of the church leaders in Spain at the time. So she refounded the Spanish congregation, the Carmelites, and we have them all over the world today, the Discalced Carmelites. She also founded with John of the Cross a male group of Carmelites who are more active in preaching. Both of these groups are present in Dublin, present in Ireland, present all over the world today. But she got into trouble for two reasons, well, many reasons, really, but two main reasons. One, she had visions and locutions. So she was a little bit like these hysterical women we've heard about earlier. She was having visions, high prayer experiences. And she countered the type of prayer that was being taught to people in those days. In those days, in the church, the so-called lay people were saying their prayers. They had words to say, and it was all tightly controlled. She was inviting people to engage with themselves at a more deep level. What today is popularly called, what's it, um, centering, not centering prayer, but the, oh, I forget, it's a very popular movement at the moment in popular world. But it's getting into touch with yourself, into silence, contemplation. 
And from that, she said, you're going to get great freedom from God to really make a difference in the world that you live in. But the men didn't like this because they had no control over this, whereas they had control over the male, the other prayer, which you, you say your words off by heart and I, the man, teach you the words to say. So they didn't like her for that. In fact, they said she was inauthentic and some of them even said she was demonic. Now, remember, we're in the time of the Spanish Inquisition and she is writing which is remarkable because she wasn't that well formally educated, but she did write. We have a lot of women like that. They got their education in different ways from men, um, influenced by the Dominicans and the Jesuits. But she wrote a lot. But in her writings, as I mentioned, she keeps saying, well, of course, this could be wrong because I'm only a woman or only for a woman I would do this or only if I wasn't a poor woman. And of course, I reverence the fathers. They know much better than this. But perhaps it was this that we could understand the way the church might be. But she does that. She, com she makes derogatory comments about her own sex. We're weak, we're fragile, we're not very reasonable. But she does this to protect herself from the Inquisition, because then the Inquisition for people who fathers who try to bring her to trial at least five times, they fall back every time because she keeps apologizing. So there's room there for her to be defended within her own writings. So a very, very bright and intelligent woman that I had to return to a second time when I discovered why she was being so apologetic. So again, she was a, an amazing woman, an amazing leader and very brave fighting against the times. So in Ireland, too, we have had numerous innovative women church leaders of their time. Here in Dublin, we've had the Dublin woman, Catherine Macaulay, born in 1778. She dedicated her life to caring and education for the poor, the vulnerable, the homeless. She opened a house in Bagot Street, not far from here in 1827. And then to ensure that her work amongst the poor would continue, she founded a congregation called the Sisters of Mercy. Most of these women did not really want to found religious congregations, but that was the only way that they could manage to continue on their work in the time. Just a comment, I was educated by the Sisters of Mercy, and I remember one of them saying at some stage that actually, maybe also even one of them was another teacher, that religious sisters, we don't call them nuns, Teresa Babila was a nun, these are religious sisters, that they were actually the first feminists of their time. And I do think that was very true. They made themselves distinct from men, they didn't depend on men's authority. Bishops took over some of them, but they tried to resist that. But they were able to get educated, they could teach, they could nurse, they could become doctors in a time when women weren't doing these things. And they could work throughout their life. They didn't have to retire when they got married, as they had to in this country. So that's uh, Catherine Macaulay. We had the Religious Sisters of Charity, Mary Aikenhead. Some of you may be familiar with Our Lady's Hospice in Harold's Cross. So they founded her congregation, founded that hospice in 1879. Newspaper reporters at the time hailed the opening of the hospice as a unique charity and one previously unknown in these islands or indeed in the neighbouring continent. The list could go on. Nano Nagel from Cork founded the Presentation Sisters. And more recently, in the last century, in 1937, the Medical Missionaries of Mary were founded by Mother Mary Martin. And this congregation have done amazing work for women's medical care and done a lot of advocacy work for women, both in Africa, where they are largely based, and also um, in Rome. One of the medical missionaries of Mary was the first to bring to the attention of the authorities in Rome the fact that many religious priests are um, abusing women, religious congregations of sisters, and that controversy is still ongoing. So then we have, we come to the, uh, then we have Professor Deirdre Raftery, who works in the Historian of Education at UCD. She's an international expert on the history of 19th century women religious. And she describes these women as women of global influence. And I think these women have had a huge influence throughout the world, just the Irish women at the moment, as well other congregations separately, but these Irish women have had a huge influence throughout the world and continue to do so in matters of education and health. And they have trained many of the great leaders of this world. Mary Robinson was educated in a school of religious sisters. And then a question arises as to the ordination of women. 
And it's a valid question. However, I just want to say cardinals who are elect our Pope, Catholic Pope, do not have to be ordained according to the rules and regulations, although they all happen to be. So that's a very easy inlet. If they decided that we could have some women cardinals tomorrow, maybe we could have 50-50, so that women would actually be involved in the election of Pope. And if we had that happening, there would be great potential for change. So I have to say the church today can only be described as dysfunctional in terms of its gospel values when it comes to issues of women. It's not following its founder and its founders from the early church, truthfully. And just to close, I want to go back to the New Testament, which is one of the founding texts of the church. The full, gospel, the full Bible is the Old and New Testament, but the New Testament tells the story of the life of Jesus Christ. And one key moment in that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when this woman, Mary of Magdala, who was not a prostitute, was the first to see the risen Lord. And the description of an apostle within the Christian tradition is one who has seen the risen Lord. So Mary of Magdala was the first of the apostles, and her name right up from the beginning time to Augustine, to Thomas Aquinas, right up to the 1500s, was the apostle to the apostles. So one has to make an argument, if a woman back in the time of the Gospels was known as the apostle to the apostles, why can women not today be involved in decision-making and leadership in a much more concrete and institutional way? Thank you very much. I'm sorry for the rush. Thanks very much, and I appreciate that working under the time constraints, and also you have to go to first of all yeah. after, but maybe if there's one big question. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. Thank you very Thank much. You I'm sorry for rushing away, but I need to learn how to teach online. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, oh, but as we're finishing up, uh, we would, I would normally at this point talk about the next events. Um, we do have a session uh, on how to get research funding. It was supposed to be in this room, but we'll, we'll work to move that online or postpone it. Um, and we have two visiting scholars coming in the next week. Again, we're going to see how that pans out and probably arrange to do them online if possible. So, uh, just watch the inboxes, I guess. Everything's in a bit, a bit in flux today. Oh, yes, and if you want to view it online, um, maybe we'll be able to, to, to help with that. Thanks so much for coming along.